Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Chris Williams is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Later this hour, we'll talk with Jason Meyer, author of Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. The book is published by Baker Books. He'll join us uh, later in this first hour. And then in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with uh, Tyler Wright. He is the new president and CEO of the YMCA, with an emphasis on the C of Columbia Willamette. We'll offer something of an introduction of uh, this new member of the leadership team at the YMCA. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, I've spent most of the day listening to the back and forth in the ongoing House uh, debate uh, as they uh, discuss and debate articles of impeachment. It literally has been back and forth and back and forth, each side taking uh, its stand and digging its heels into the position that's already been established. And a vote is expected sometime later this evening. Now, that could change. We know that when the uh, Judiciary Committee met and they had an ongoing debate that lasted for hours at the last minute, Mr. Nadler decided, well, we're going to take this up and vote the next day. So presumably there will be a vote later this evening, but anything can happen. As I've mentioned here before, it is expected. It's a foregone conclusion that Democrats in the House will impeach the president, which means the trial will take place. The evidence will be reviewed by the Senate at some point after the new year, I expect. Uh, But a vote is expected in the House. um, A very quick, uh, quick process. This is only the third uh, Impeachment, and I'm jumping the gun a bit, but the third impeachment of U.S. sitting president in our nation's history. There was the beginnings of a fourth attempt with uh, Richard Nixon, but he resigned before that moved forward. So we'll keep our eyes poised on what's happening there, although I have to admit the fact that I'm in here doing the show means I don't have to listen to them uh, going on and on as I have all day long. So it's been it's been a bit of a, of a rough day. I mean, there's some incredible things that are being said, some of it true, some not so Uh, accurate. But nonetheless, it is an historic season in our nation's history, and it is, from my perspective, an unfortunate season as well. Well, taking a look at some of the headlines covering both yesterday and today. Oh, and by the way, I wanted to thank you for your generosity in responding to the World Concern Radiothon yesterday. Uh, A goal had been set for us, and at the last minute, we met and slightly exceeded that goal. So I am so grateful uh, for your generosity. I know not not everyone can give to every campaign, and it can be somewhat challenging to hear every month, essentially, what's going on in the world and, and to be asked to respond and help. But Uh, In every case, in 2019, you have been very generous, and this World Concern event was no exception. So I want to say thank you for those of you who were able to respond. And I would encourage all of us to remember what's happening uh, there, as well as in um, northern Kenya, uh, Somalia and northern Kenya, uh, because there is a a serious drought. While they've they've had some rain, uh, one rain does not a reversal make. And they've throughout this whole three-plus-year period, there's been... Um, occasional rain, but not enough to support a crop or livestock. And that's it's, this is an agrarian society, and that's what they need to survive. So if you think of them, uh, I hope you do, you'll, uh, you'll pray. Taking a look at some of the headlines again from yesterday, Rudy Giuliani, the personal attorney for the president, said Monday that he played a key role in forcing ex-U.S. ambassador to Ukraine 
Marie Ivanovich from her post earlier this year and claimed that he has evidence the Trump impeachment inquiry is a cover-up of Democratic malfeasance. Well, Giuliani, one of Trump's most loyal defenders, told Laura Ingram on the Ingram Angle that he helped uh, force out Ivanovich because she was corrupt and obstructing the investigation into Ukraine and the Bidens. He had raised eyebrows recently after an interview was published in The New Yorker, where he was uh, quoted saying that he needed her out of the way because she would make the investigation into the Bidens difficult for everybody. Giuliani said he was not the first person to go to the president with concerns about the diplomat. Ivanovich, a career diplomat and daughter of immigrants who fled from the Soviet, uh, the former Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, Germany claimed that she was ousted from her role due to a smear campaign by the Trump allies. Trump's tweets about her were shown during her testimony in front of Congress last month, and she called them very intimidating. And with just hours uh, to go until the House Rules Committee met last, uh, or I should say yesterday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, on Tuesday for a marathon session to set the ground rules of this week's final impeachment vote. Many of the moderate Democrats in the uh, districts the president won in 2016 started to fall in line in favor of impeachment. We'll see if that holds um, following the uh, ongoing debate that's uh, that started early this morning, continues and is expected to continue into um, the evening. In uh, In other news, the 14-year-old suspected killer of Barnard College freshman Tessa Majors jumped out of a car while on his way to meet with police officers on Monday, sparking a manhunt in Harlem, according to police. Police officers fanned out across 125th Street with particular focus between uh, a couple of streets and boulevards to look for the alleged teenage killer. The middle schooler and adults... Um, and an adult were headed to meet with police officers on Monday when the kid bolted out of the car. A high-ranking source told the uh, Washington, or rather the New York Post, the adult identified, um, uh, I should say, notified authorities who took the area uh, to uh, took to the area to track for the teen. The fresh-faced fugitive is among three suspects police officers have identified in the fatal stabbing of an 18-year-old. Earlier this month, Congress finalized the 2020 budget bill ahead of impending shutdown. But uh, it, the bill includes federal research into gun violence and raising the tobacco buying age to 21. Chuck Schumer issues a list of Democrat demands for Senate impeachment trial. Uh, it gets um, wrecked uh, for hypocrisy related to Bill Clinton's impeachment um, uh, trial. And the House has vowed to continue impeachment probes regardless of the Senate outcome. So this is the first in what may be a series of impeachment efforts. Uh, if the president is reelected, they've already indicated uh, they are not uh, opposed to attempting again. And the um, dossier author, uh, the Christopher Steele, has broken his silence with the uh, uh, inspector general report with rebuttal. And uh, Rudy Giuliani, as I've mentioned, says that he has new proof of massive corruption in Ukraine involving the Bidens. The president has slammed the debate commission, raising questions about his participation in the 2020 presidential debates. And women, indisputably, they're better than men, says the dude who prevented a female from becoming president of the United States. That's President Obama. And while it's flattering to hear a male say that women are better than men, no, we're not. Can I just say that? No, we're not. We have the capacity to the same kind of evil and self-interest as everyone else. We just might look better at it when we're doing it, so I, I don't fall for that. Anyway, just 11 migrants have qualified for asylum under Remain in Mexico, the program that was agreed upon by the Uh, Trump administration and Mexico authorities. Starbucks again is apologizing after an employee allegedly um, treated law enforcement with disrespect, refusing to serve one. And Boeing is going to halt the 737 MAX production in January as FAA reviews 
the um, uh, software for that program. All right, we're going to continue to wind our way through some of the day's news. Also coming up in this hour, we'll talk with Jason Meyer. Don't lose heart. Gospel hope for the discouraged soul. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump today was far away from Capitol Hill and the Washington establishment he has long criticized as an irredeemable swamp as the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives prepares to impeach him in a likely party-line vote on charges of obstruction of Congress and abuse of power. Instead, the president is going to be on friendly turf in downtown Battle Creek, Michigan, hosting a rally that may rank among the most defiant, a marked contrast from the approach of former President Bill Clinton, who mostly stayed under the radar during his own impeachment proceedings in 1998. There will be a usually unusually tight security near the Capitol building in Washington today, according to sources. House Democrats are going to convene and did adopt the rules for the impeachment debate shortly after 9 a.m. Eastern time, followed by six hours of debate evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats. Some members uh, will be afforded only one minute to speak. That's the majority of them. And no amendments to the impeachment resolution will be permitted. The final vote sequence will likely begin well into the evening hours with one vote held on each article of impeachment. The stage was set uh, uh, last night by the House Rules Committee, which approved the procedures for today's impeachment proceedings in a nine to four party line vote after a marathon day of contentious hearings. Wednesday promises to be a long day. That's what the Rules Committee chairman, Jim McGovern, uh, told reporters. It will likely end with Trump becoming just the third president to ever to be impeached, a history-making development that Trump has said reflects a far worse on congressional Democrats than it does on him. In a blistering, no-holds-barred, six-page letter last night to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the president lambasted the Democrats' impeachment inquiry as an open war on American democracy, writing that Pelosi has violated her oath of office and cheapened the importance of the very ugly word impeachment. Well, former FBI lawyer Lisa Page spoke out Tuesday night explaining her controversial texts to her, well, friend, former FBI agent Peter Strzok, and defending the Russia investigation into the president. Appearing on the Rachel Maddow show, a friendly audience, Page was asked about the insurance policy text that Strzok had sent to her during the 2016 election that was released by the Justice Department in 2017, part of a string of texts that led to Strzok's removal from the Russia probe over concerns of potential bias. It's an analogy, Page began. First of all, it's not my text, so I'm sort of interpreting what I believe he meant back three years ago. But we're using an analogy. We're talking about whether or not we should take certain investigative steps or not based on the likelihood that he's going to be president or not. Well, Page's interview aired hours after the chief judge of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court or FISA court Uh, in the rare public order, strongly criticized the FBI over its surveillance application process, giving the Bureau until the 10th of next month to come up with solutions. In the wake of findings from the Justice Department, Inspector General Michael Horowitz. And the California Public Utilities Commission has proposed a $1.68 billion settlement with PG&E Corporation for the role the utility company played in igniting a series of deadly wildfires in 2017 and 2018 that killed more than 100 people. Under the terms of the settlement included in the filing by the regulator, the company would be required to spend the amount of the penalty on steps to prevent future wildfires. It wouldn't be 
allowed to pass those costs on to its customers in the form of higher rates. The settlement, which still needs to be approved by utility commissioners, is a slightly larger penalty than the settlement PG&E and the regulator reached in 2015 over a 2010 explosion in San Bruno, California. Well, the FISA court has issued a rare public order condemning the FBI for Russia, uh, the probe and abuses and demanding reform of the agency. New um, uh, attestation, I guess (laughs) the word here. Uh, shows that Hunter Biden and Ukraine offered payments, uh, payments rather, flagging a, a suspicious uh, relationship as early as 2016, according to the Daily Wire. And the Senate has sent $738 billion in defense in a bill to the president. The House approved a $1.4 trillion spending package. Much of Trump company, uh, country rather was in recession during the 2016 campaign, looking back. And the Dow Jones officially exceeded 28,333, up 10,000 points since Trump's election, despite doomsday predictions. And Vox Media fires hundreds of of freelancers due to a law trumpeted by Vox. Hmm. Well, New York clergy sex abuse victims are suing the Pope, claiming in a landmark lawsuit filed on Tuesday that he and the Vatican were aware that a significant number of priests were molesting children and kept it secret. That's in the New York Post. And a new um, Nike Kaepernick shoe honors um, uh, his uh, first time kneeling at the national anthem. And on this day in history, 1865, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution abolishing slavery is declared in effect by Secretary of State William Seward. Months earlier, he had survived an assassination attempt on the same night that President Abraham Lincoln was killed. On this day in 1892, Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky's ballet, I didn't get that quite right. Anyway, the ballet, The Nutcracker, publicly premieres in St. Petersburg, Russia. My Russian teacher would not be pleased. On this day in 1917, Congress passes the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, prohibiting the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors and sends it to the states for ratification. On this day in history, 1998, the House debates articles of impeachment against Bill Clinton. Deja vu. On this day in 1940, Adolf Hitler signs a secret directive ordering preparations for a Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Operation Barbarossa would launch in June of 1941. In 1944, the U.S. Supreme Court upholds the government's wartime evacuation of people of Japanese descent from the West Coast, while at the same time ruling that um, conceitedly loyal Americans of Japanese ancestry could not continue to be detained. On this date in 1957, the um, uh, shipping port atomic power station in Pennsylvania, the first nuclear facility to generate electricity in the United States, goes online. It would be taken out of service in 1982. Finally, 2000, the Electoral College casts its ballots with President-elect George W. Bush receiving the expected 271 Al Gore, however, received 266, one fewer than expected because of a District of Columbia Democrat who leaves her ballot blank to protest the district's lack of representation in Congress. And the rest, we know, has already taken place. Well, by a 9-4 party line vote, as mentioned a moment ago, uh, late Tuesday night, the Democrat-led House Rules Committee approved the procedures for how the full House will consider the two articles of impeachment against President Trump following a marathon session that at times provided a glimpse of the fireworks 
at that time that were to come. However, those fireworks are in full display now as the hearing that began early this morning has continued in the House as they are debating articles of impeachment against the president of the United States. Meanwhile, while the House uh, is pursuing their partisan impeachment uh, process, the Senate Republican confirmed Donald Trump's 50th circuit judge last week, helping the president continue to shatter the all-time record for the number of critically important federal circuit judges appointed at this point in any prior administration. To put that number in context, President Barack Obama appointed 55 federal circuit judges during the entirety of his eight-year presidency. President Trump has almost matched that in just three years. In doing this, the president has already appointed 25 percent of all active federal circuit judges around the country. The two newest federal circuit judges are Patrick um, Bumate and Lawrence Van Dyke, who won Senate confirmation to the U.S. uh, Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit over ferocious opposition by Senate Democrats and their left-wing allies. Bumate uh, previously served as a federal prosecutor fighting illegal immigration, drug cartels, and other serious crimes on the southern border in Southern California. He also served as a top attorney in the Justice Department, playing an important role in the confirmations of Justice Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. Bumate graduated from Yale and Harvard before clerking on the Tenth Circuit and then on a key federal district court in New York. The Democrats and their allies have a long and well-documented pattern of and practice of uh, attacking conservative minority nominees, and they made no exception with Bumate. Judge Lawrence Van Dyke brings a wealth of legal experience to the position. He, too, graduated from Harvard Law, where he served as an editor of the Harvard Law Review. He clerked on the prestigious D.C. Circuit for Judge Janice Rogers Brown, an African-American conservative woman, again appointed over fierce Democrat opposition. Van Dyke is the only person to have ever served as the state solicitor general, the top appellate attorney for two different states. He had 24 federal appellate arguments and served as counsel of a record uh, 39 Supreme Court briefs. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this um Well, dark evening at about 30 minutes after four o'clock. When we return, we're going to talk with Jason Meyer, author of Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. A good day to talk about that. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in a world that's surrounded by 24-hour news and reminders on social media of tragedy and heartache, again, 24 hours a day, it's easy to fall into the abyss of discouragement and anxiety. Well, in his new book, Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul, Pastor and Professor Jason Meyer encourages readers to gain sight into who holds our hope. Now, each chapter addresses different types of negative emotions that cause us to lose focus. Maybe we're feeling overwhelmed or defeated. We feel worthless, disappointed. And the future, well, it's frightening. He says that when we see that the one who is for us is greater than all that is against us, our chains will fall off and our hearts will be free to hope again. Well, Jason Meyer is pastor for Preaching and Vision at Bethlehem Baptist Church and associate professor of New Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for Discouraged Soul. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
Great to be with you. Thank you. You begin uh, the book in the introduction with a story about Elisha and his servant. Now, when I first started reading that, I thought, okay, where are we going with this? But this is such an important lesson that we learn from a scripture that might seem somewhat obscure out of, uh, I think it's Second Kings. Tell us a bit about that story and how that relates to our effort to deal with discouragement or losing heart. Yeah, there's some stories in the Bible that just seem downright strange, and you wonder, how could this ever apply to me? So here in this story, Elisha and his servant are surrounded by the Syrian army, and when the servant sees it, he's overwhelmed and cries out, what shall we do? And that's really the way that we can often feel when we're surrounded by difficulty. We might not have a literal army surrounding us, but we have problems that pile up and we get overwhelmed and we say, what should we do? And in this story, what's so powerful is that Elisha prays that his servant's eyes would be open, and they are, and he sees that the the hills are surrounded with these flaming chariots and, and this heavenly army. And Elisha says, those who are for us are more than those who are against us. And it's almost a perfect picture of the way the Bible addresses discouragement, because the one who is for us is always greater than that which is against us, And a fallen world has many reasons to lose heart, and they're real, and they're easy to see. But the real battle with discouragement is this fight for sight, that actually what's always true is that the reasons to take heart are always greater than the reasons to lose heart. In fact, you make the statement, the Christian life is a fight for sight. Um, And how much easier it is to see and recognize those things that run counter to our values and the things that we are threatened by, and it's much more difficult to see the things that are uh, to see what is for us, uh, and that the uh, the degree of, of difficulty makes it harder for us to uh, to have eyes that see. Yeah, all you have to do to be discouraged is to be cognizant, to be awake, to to realize and kind of take inventory of the things around you that are hard, or all the things that go wrong or could go wrong. We see those so instinctively, and yet. The Bible says that things that are eternal are actually more real, more substantial. They last forever, and therefore, the reasons to take heart are always greater, even though they're harder to see, because Paul can say, we don't lose heart because we know where to look. These momentary light afflictions are actually producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So those things that we can only see by faith, that's what Elisha was asking God to show his servant. What's really real? And in those moments, we we take heart because we realize the things that are for me are actually longer-lasting, more substantial, and can't fail. Yeah. You write that this book will, um, in the book, you look at the issue of discouragement theologically and practically. So what the scriptures have to say and how we walk out uh, what the scriptures tell us is true at times of, of discouragement. Yeah, so let's just take a really practical example. So here's an example where the, the Israelites, they're in captivity. The Babylonian army is much greater than they are. And they're tempted to be discouraged and lose heart. And God pulls out all the stops in Isaiah 40 with these just God-sized visions of himself. And he says, for example, who 
has held the waters in the hollow of his hand. And one day I was reading that and just said, okay, I don't want to have a boring mind here. Let me try to figure out how much water can I hold in the hollow of my hand. I first tried a a tablespoon, and actually water went everywhere. So then I did it over the sink from then on, and I got it down to I could almost fit a teaspoon of water in my hand. And then compare that with God who can hold, he says, the waters in the hollow of his hand. I I did some research on what that is, and it turns out that all the water in the world is 332.5 million gallons of water, this um, not just a gallon of water, but this, this unit of measurement, that's 1.1 trillion gallon, gallons of water, a cubic mile of water, 332.5 cubic miles of water that you then multiply by 1.1 million gallons. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable. Like you put it into a calculator and you just get that big E sign because <laughs> it can't compute. And in that moment, what happens is that you're forced to resize the situation. Rather than telling your God how big your problems are, you can start telling your problems how big your God is and realize God is the one that holds the hollows, the water in the hollow of his hand. He's the one for whom the nations of the world are like dust on a scale, like a drop in the bucket. And very practically, once I preached on Isaiah 40 in this couple, they were really discouraged because their only child was having needing kind of life-saving surgery at Mayo Clinic, and they were just so overwhelmed. Well, they, they heard these pictures from Isaiah 40, and they realized that when they got overwhelmed, they had a very simple signal to one another to resize the situation. They just held out their hands to each other to remind themselves that they're in the, the hand of God, and that when they resize the situation and how great the one is that's for them, suddenly they felt like they could be encouraged and trust that he's greater than what was against them. Mm. Your book is in, in two parts. In the first part of the book, you say that it's like an eye exam. Do you see the greatness of God? Do you see all that you have in him? And that's what you've just described, how we can begin to see beyond what seems obvious to us, our limited perspective uh, on those things that trouble us uh, that are nearby, but having the capacity to see beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the story that I think really gives me the most hope is actually kind of a funny story from my uh, high school years. My, my last high school basketball game, I scored my one and only slam dunk in the game, and I was running back to the other side of the court just feeling like my, my feet were barely touching the ground, and our, our fans were just screaming wildly. And then suddenly the opposing fans stopped it all with this chant. They started chanting, check the score, check the score, check the score. And it worked because we looked at the scoreboard and it turns out we were 16 points down with a minute left. There's no way that we could win. <laughs> but for a moment we felt like we were winning, but we forgot we were losing. And so often the Christian life is like that. We are tempted to feel like we're losing when Satan is tempting us and pulling out all these, pulling out all the stops against us. For a brief moment, we can feel like we're losing. When he's persecuting the church, so many Christians are dying every year. And then what the resurrection does is it reminds us, check the score. He's alive forevermore. 
check the score. Satan has lost. He's not persecuting the church because he thinks he can win, but because he knows he's going to lose and his time is short. And so what happens so often when we get discouraged is we're checking the wrong scoreboard. Yeah, yeah, that's We're looking at the scoreboard of our own analysis and our wins and losses and successes and failures rather than seeing the finished work of Christ. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. We're talking with Jason Meyer, author of Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. The book is published by Baker Books. It's a small book. It gets right to the point. I think you'll find it very helpful. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 48 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Jason Meyer, author of Don't Lose Heart Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul, an excellent little volume that, as I mentioned, gets to the point. In the second part of the book, you dig a little deeper and analyze some of the real life reasons that we tend to lose heart. Explain for our listeners who don't have the volume in their hands uh, how the second part gets a bit more specific with some of the, the things that discourage us. Yeah, I try to analyze some specific reasons we get discouraged. I, I argue there are three different tenses for discouragement the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense. The past tense is when our, our past really paralyzes us. We feel worthless. We feel guilty. And in those moments, what's happening, it's not the problem that we go back to those things, to that moment of failure, that moment of sin or shame or whatever it is. It's that we don't go all the way back and take those things back to the cross where they've been paid and we're no longer guilty of those things. They've been forgiven. We're no longer shamed because Christ has taken our shame on the cross. And so the, the problem often is that our, our, our memories become like a, a twisted time machine that makes us go back to that place of failure and just get stuck there. Rather than what Paul does, he takes it all the way back to the cross and says it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. It was for this reason he showed mercy, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience to everyone who would believe. So when the past tries to paralyze you with shame and guilt, take it all the way back to the cross, see it nailed there, and say, I bear it no more. Mm. In the present tense, what we face oftentimes is discouragement and the, the gap uh, between what we expect and what we actually have, that distance is often called discouragement. Our expectations are that things are going to go better than they are. And so, therefore, when our expectations are met, we just feel this distance called discouragement. And what we need to realize, number one, is what has God actually promised? He's not being unfaithful to those promises. In fact, Scripture goes out of its way to say, don't be surprised when you face trials of various kinds. Don't count it as something strange. So we have to read the Bible to really understand, well, what really should we expect, and what's God doing in the midst of these things? So if you take suffering and you say, I'm discouraged by this, because I didn't think life would be this hard, we have to ask, well, this is God caring for me? in this moment. Like, I remember, if you just look at something from one vantage point, you can think it doesn't look very merciful. Like, I grew up on a farm, and I used to see baby chicks being hatched out of an egg, 
and you just watch it. It's it's this process that's so painful as they peck, 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 and then pass out, and then peck, 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 and then pass out. And I once thought it'd be merciful to just break open the egg and let the chick out, but the chick always died because it was that process that made mm. the chick strong enough to have the lungs be strong, enough to live. And that's exactly what the Bible says about suffering. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know that this is for the steadfastness of your faith. God knows that we need to be strengthened. The Christian life isn't a sprint, but a marathon, and these things are making us strong to be able to make it to the end. Or when you get to the very end and you say the future scares us because it's uncertain, we don't know what's coming, and we're very good at being able to forecast trouble. We see it coming, we anticipate it, but we're very bad at being able to forecast grace, that mercy mm. is coming. That God says that there's going to be new mercies every morning. So if you look into the future and see trouble, and then you borrow that, Jesus says, don't borrow trouble from, from tomorrow, because every day has enough of its own. So if you try to take the cares that are coming tomorrow and pay for them in today's grace, you're always going to be overdrafted in your account. When tomorrow's troubles come, grace will be there every morning. So we have to be able to start forecasting the grace and mercy that are coming as well, not just forecasting our troubles. Oh, that's so good. One of the points that you make, you say it's a crucial point of context in understanding um, this process that we go through, is that we were not meant to try to defeat discouragement on our own. And you offer a couple of examples. You make reference to Hebrews 12.1, but you also tell the story, a really a remarkable story, about a young man uh, at Hannah High School who was on the cross-country team in Anderson, South Carolina. Talk a little bit about the importance of being a part of a community when we're going through times of discouragement and, and that illustration that you offer in the introduction of the book. Yeah, I'll never forget reading that story about Ben Komen. Ben Komen had cerebral palsy, and so that condition caused him to fall constantly because he didn't lift his feet high enough when he ran. So he tripped on everything, and then he fell really hard because his brain couldn't send signals fast enough to get his arms underneath him to cushion the fall. So he'd be watching him run and fall and get up and be bloodied and bruised, and people in the stands, grown men, would just be in tears watching his perseverance because he kept getting up, and he always finished every race. Even though he finished last every race, he finished. And what would often happen is that when the other runners would finish running their race, they would stop at the finish line after they got done, and they would come back to where Ben was and make sure in solidarity they were running with him and they finished together, even people on the opposing team. And when you look at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, a lot of people envision the Christian life as, it's my race to run, and they forget that all of those words in Hebrews 12 are plural. Let us together run the race with endurance that's set before us. We're not meant to run this race on our own. We're all going to fall and stumble, but Christians are supposed to link arms together and finish the race together. That's such a, a beautiful uh, illustration. We're talking about the book, Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. I mentioned earlier in the program that I've spent the day watching the debate that's going on in Washington uh, as to whether or not to impeach the president, and it, it can be discouraging and overwhelming and 
uh, heart-rending. It certainly is a, a national um, a rending of, of our, our country. Um, uh, talk a little bit about uh, events that take place that we're not directly involved in and how they might impact and feed into our sense of discouragement and how we deal with those things that don't directly involve us but influence um, the way we view uh, our, our own uh, situation and our discouragement. Yeah, you know, when you look at something that's happening like in the political sphere, it's it's really important to go back to what are the actual promises that we've been given. I remember Chuck Colson, who started the ministry uh, Prison Fellowship, after Ronald Reagan had done one of these rallies, and they actually were, he had just left, and there was this kind of pandemonium. People were so encouraged and everything that was happening. And, and Chuck Colson in that moment actually said, let's all remember the kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One. Hmm. <laughs> and it's a, a good reminder for us because we're tempted to put our hope in horses and chariots. Yeah. And it's not wrong to use horses and chariots. It's not wrong to participate in the political process. But over and over in Scripture, it says it's wrong to trust in that, yes. to put your hope in the wrong things that can fail you. Boy, that's such a, an excellent reminder as things unravel in Washington that have an impact on us wherever we happen to live in the country. We're just about out of time, but what what is the main thing you want your readers and our listeners today to take home from Don't Lose Heart uh, in terms of dealing with a discouraged soul? Yeah, I, the the way that I end the book is the way I'd want to end every conversation I'm in, I feel like. Um, but the one truth that you can cling to, whatever you're going through, right? Like right now, if you just can't see what's what's the reason for this, am I going to make it through this? I remember in Minneapolis, our church is right next to the stadium where the Vikings play, U.S. Bank Stadium. And I got to see it being built, and it started off as just this massive hole in the ground. Couldn't believe how deep they had to dig for this thing. And then uh, one of our pastors said, hey, everybody, how do you like the new stadium? And everybody laughed because it was just a big hole in the ground. And he said, yeah, you're right. Of course we're laughing, but it's not done. If, if that was the end product, we'd have some serious questions for the architects. But it's the same point when we realize and look at our own life and have to say, God's not done. He's still at work. We haven't seen the final product, so we can't question the architect. And in fact, when you read the Bible, you see this again and again. He wasn't done when Joseph was in prison, or Jeremiah was in the pit, or Jonah was in the fish, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. He wasn't done when Sarah's womb was barren, Ruth was a widow, Virgin Mary was told she would bear a son. wasn't done when Goliath was taunting the armies of Israel, or Jezebel killed the prophets of Israel, or the Babylonians destroyed the temple of Israel. He wasn't done. And he wasn't done when Jesus was mocked and nailed to the cross and buried in the tomb. What we need to see right now in our life is take that narrative from Scripture and remind ourselves, whatever you're going through, God's not done. He's going to work all things together for our good. Amen. Once again, the book is titled Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. Jason Meyer, thank you so much for talking with us today. And I would encourage our listeners to check out the book. It's published by Baker Books and available in bookstores. Merry Christmas and thank you for being with us today. Merry Christmas. Thank you so much. Yeah, Excellent. Excellent. Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for 
the discouraged soul. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. Later in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Tyler Wright. Well, who is Tyler Wright? Well, he is the new president and CEO of the YMCA of Columbia Willamette. We'll offer something of an introduction, so stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Later this hour, we're going to talk with the new president and CEO of the YMCA of Columbia Willamette. We'll offer something of an introduction. Tyler Wright will be my guest. Well, Daniel Darling uh, points out in a recent column that nobodies were the first to know. When God announced the birth of Christ to sweaty, uncouth shepherds, he signaled something important about the kind of Messiah he was sending. He writes that being on a big-time television news show is one of the best ways to try to announce big news. Public relations professionals work hard to secure these opportunities, trying to get their guests in front of millions of eyeballs. But when God announced the birth of Jesus to the world, he used the opposite approach. He didn't send Jesus to 30 Rock but sent the host of heaven to a common field outside Bethlehem. And the people who chose as his spokesmen were unpolished, sweaty, uncouth shepherds. They might probably need a different publicist or representative. Well, today, shepherds are romanticized in nearly every Christmas pageant. Many of us have donned a modified pillowcase and grabbed a walking stick to appear in a Christmas pageant at church or school. But in the first century, nobody thought shepherds were, well, cute. And certain, certainly nobody thought that they were important, but there, there they were, the first to know at Christmas. Shepherds were not really considered part of polite society in those days. They were required to tend their flocks outside the city gates. The only reason shepherds had any significance was because sheep were a valuable commodity, especially as it got closer to Passover when many lambs would be sacrificed in the temple. So they served their purpose, but outside the city gates. The work of shepherds was and still is extraordinarily difficult. They had to wrangle obstinate sheep. They had to ensure their flocks were well-fed. And they had to fend off predators, wolves, or even larger animals like bears and lions. Sometimes unsavory characters would come in and try to steal the sheep. This is why shepherds were awake on this night. Most likely, they were sleeping in shifts, ensuring the livestock were not compromised. And yet, there is something significant and powerful about the inclusion of the shepherds in Jesus' story. Luke is reminding us by mentioning the shepherds that the kingdom of God isn't just for the insider, but for outsiders like shepherds, like the poor classes where Mary and Joseph came from. It reminds us that the kingdom of God is often made up not of noble and wise, but the underclass, those people who have no business being near royalty. Emmanuel, God with us, means God is truly among all classes of people, not simply the connected or well-resourced. The presence of the shepherds in the Christmas story also tells us a little bit about just what kind of Messiah Jesus would be. He would come to us as a savior, as a king, as a lion, but also as our shepherd. Though this vocation was not viewed with respect by peers, Scripture always portrays shepherding as a high calling, perhaps the most repeated image of leadership in the Bible. God refers to himself as Israel's shepherd in Genesis and Jeremiah. In Psalm 23, David is grateful to affirm that the Lord is my shepherd. And the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah often warned God's people about poor shepherds, bad leaders who exploit rather than lead. To shepherd in God's world is to sacrificially care for the vulnerable ones under your protection. Shepherds in those days didn't drive their herds, but gently led them. Today, sometimes even in Christian circles, leadership as shepherding is viewed as negatively as it might have been among the sophisticated in the first century. 
Those spiritual leaders in Scripture from the Old Testament to the New are often compared to shepherds. Many evangelical leaders' um, texts dismiss the idea. I once heard a prominent preacher mock the idea, saying that a CEO or a general is a better description of Christian leadership. But it's hard to dismiss how intentional the Holy Spirit is in including this vision of gentle yet firm leadership, both as the way God leads his people and how God intends his followers to be led. Among Jesus' last words to Peter were, Feed my sheep, John twenty-one seventeen. This is how we demonstrate God's love, by taking care of others with soft hands and compassion. This is why I believe the announcement of the coming Jesus himself, the Good Shepherd, John 10, had to happen in a shepherd's field. Luke is telling us that this ruler who is to come would be different than the rulers his people were used to seeing. He wouldn't be a Caesar who ruled only by brute force. He wouldn't be a Herod who governed by treachery, murder, paranoia. No, Jesus would be among all of his attributes, a shepherd, and he would entrust himself and his message to shepherds. Well, the Lamb of God would first be held and handled by those who knew how to appreciate and care for a lamb. And yet more than anybody, these shepherds knew the ultimate fate of each lamb for which they cared. I imagine they heard the prophecy of Isaiah more keenly than anyone in Israel. They tended the very lambs that would be sacrificed at Passover. And yet a lamb was come who would be the final sacrifice. This lamb wouldn't simply cover their sins as the sacrifices did, but he would actually become sin. John the Baptist said about Jesus later, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First chapter of John, the good news of the coming of the lamb of God slain for the sins of the world announced among lambs set aside for the temple sacrifice. And in the city of David, Israel's last great shepherd. This is God declaring to his people that Jesus, both the good shepherd and the Lamb of God, was coming to make true peace between God and man. One minute they were watching the flocks, maybe catching a few minutes of sleep after a night shift, and the next minute they were witnessing salvation. They witnessed salvation in human history. The display in the heavens must have been spectacular. As the sky around them filled with the host of heaven, praising God and worshiping him. Oh, to have seen and heard what took place that night. Not even the greatest performance on earth with the most talented musicians could parallel the incredible celebration that unfolded on the big screen of the sky before these shepherds. The plan of God conceived from time immemorial, the plan of redemption promised in the garden was unfolding before the eyes of these lowly shepherds. I always find it interesting how God seems throughout Scripture to show up in the middle of an ordinary person's daily routine. It's not like the shepherds got an email invite the day before. Meet up at Field One for an epic event. And yet, even though they were caught by surprise, these men of humble means and reputation responded in ways that prove God's wisdom in entrusting the announcement of the birth of Jesus to them. They believed. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to look at the shepherds. When God announced the birth of Jesus, he announced it primarily and firstly to these sweaty, uncouth shepherds, and he signaled something important about the kind of Messiah he was sending. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just giving you a heads up on the vote that is currently taking place. On the uh, uh, one count of the impeachment um, article, the abuse of power, it is pretty much along party lines. So far, two Democrats have voted 
uh, in opposition. Uh, all uh, Democrats and one independent in favor of the impeachment, 136 Republicans, and the vote is ongoing, uh, voted uh, in opposition to the impeachment of the president on the first article, the abuse of power. We're talking about the shepherds and what uh, uh, their place in this story of the birth of Christ might reveal about who Jesus was. Um, they believed, referring to these shepherds, these men saw the angels, heard the witness and believed. The scribes were too jaded. The royals were too sophisticated. The Romans were too dismissive. Both these humble outsiders uh, had the simple faith to look up, to listen, and to put their faith in the Christ child, not fully comprehending what was happening, but hearing and seeing all of the events surrounding this birth. They could be awed. The world of the first century was pretty cynical. False messiahs had come and gone. The promise of Israel's restoration seemed more like a pipe dream, and the Roman flag waved high above the Temple Mount. And yet here were people still willing to be awed. Luke says the shepherds possessed great fear. And wouldn't you? You're a lowly shepherd in a backwater town in ravaged land. And all of a sudden the heavens open and angels start singing. Yes, I think we'd all be fearful. And yet there's something wonderful about the ability to still be awed by God. Today's world is just as jaded as the world of the first century. Smart people are way too enlightened to believe in the supernatural. And yet Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Real spirituality is a healthy awe, reverence, and fear of God to know that you're, uh, you're nothing and God is awesome. The closer you are to heaven, the greater fear and awe of God. Well, this Christmas season, we hope that your heart is open to the awe and wonder of what took place back there in Bethlehem so many years ago. It's easy to treat our religious traditions, especially Christmas, as a sort of ho-hum affair. It comes, it goes, it'll come again. But God visits those who are willing to fear and to awe, to wonder and to meditate. Have you stopped what you're doing long enough to see what God is doing around us? Have you sufficiently unplugged from the digital distractions that keep your mind, keep our minds moving, but divert us from the supernatural? Are you willing to be awed by an awesome and powerful God and by the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Fearsome. But there is a sense in which our fear turns to faith. The angel said, fear not. Well, why? Because Jesus is a shepherd who who should fear Uh, who we should fear, but no longer have to be afraid of. This royal announcement on a cold night in Bethlehem meant that those who put their faith in this baby Jesus would experience peace with God. This is what the angels meant by peace on earth toward men of goodwill. In one sense, the angels were reminding the shepherds that the temporary peace being experienced in the Roman Empire would one day give way to war. But only this Prince of Peace could usher in genuine shalom, true renewal. And this baby Jesus would offer personal peace with God. The one who came to the shepherds would be the good shepherd of their souls. The Lamb of God would fully atone for sin. No more would worshipers need to sacrifice actual lambs. They lived with purpose. Luke makes sure we know that the shepherds didn't waste time gazing into the Bethlehem sky. Once they heard the witness of the angels, they made haste to quote King James Version, Luke 2, verse 16. And wouldn't you? They couldn't keep this message to themselves. They abandoned their as uh, all pretenses and bolted into Bethlehem, sheep and all, to find the Messiah. Imagine the sight they must have um, seen, the, the sight they must have been, knocking on doors, waking up the locals, shouting the good news that the long-awaited Messiah had finally come. They didn't simply marvel at the message. They believed it, and it changed their direction. 
A temptation for us this Christmas is to simply get full of the feels, the warm sentimentality of the season, and miss the good news at the heart of the holiday. Christ has come into the world to save you and to save me. The angel told the shepherds that this good news was for you. It was personal. Kent Hughes put it in his commentary on Luke. The truth is, even if Christ were born in Bethlehem a thousand times, but not within you, you would be eternally lost. The Christ who was born into the world must be born into your heart. Religious sentiment, even Christmas time without the living Christ, is a yellow brick road to darkness. The shepherds left their fields and became the most unlikely of messengers. John Calvin says of them, though God had at his command many honorable and distinguished witnesses, he passed by them and chose shepherds, persons of humble rank and of no account among men. They became the world's first missionaries, the first in a long line of ordinary, unheralded messengers of the gospel. God is on the move, building his church around the world, mostly through people you will never hear of, folks without significant Twitter follows, followings with no official titles and of whom the world is mostly unworthy. Go tell it on the mountain, the Christmas hymn urges us, that Jesus Christ is born, and that is what we are to do. Again, Daniel Darling, who works for the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and Vice President of Communications. What a tremendous opportunity we have, not only to know the story, but to know the central personality in that story, to be in awe and wonder as were these shepherds of what was taking place before them on that wonderful evening. Well, as I mentioned a bit later, in fact, in our next segment, we're going to talk with the uh, president and CEO of the YMCA of Columbia Willamette coming recently to the Pacific Northwest to take on that role. Tyler Wright will be my guest. We'll offer something of an introduction. As you know, the YMCA has put considerable effort into uh, emphasizing the C in those four letters, Christ being at the center as they serve in our community and all across the country. So Tyler Wright will join us to talk a bit about how he arrived here and what we might anticipate under his leadership. So congratulations to the Columbia Willamette YMCA. As I mentioned earlier, the House is voting now on the Trump impeachment uh, Article 1 of the resolution, and that has to do with um, abuse of power. Uh, the numbers at this point, and again, um, the, I guess the, the voting has ended now. It's 225 in favor of impeaching the president, 172 uh, opposed to um, impeaching the president. That includes 170 Republicans and uh, two Democrats opposing the first article of impeachment. Uh, that includes 224 Democrats, one independent, uh, voting in favor of Article 1 of the resolution to impeach the president. There are two articles of impeachment. Obstruction of Congress is the second. And my expectation is if I haven't missed the first uh, uh, vote, um, that vote will be uh, taking place momentarily. Uh, They were given about 10 minutes to cast their ballots, and that has now officially been done. So whether or not the second article of impeachment is uh, passed by the majority Democrats in the House, the first article has now passed. And essentially the president is impeached. Now, what that means is it's a reprimand. It says that the president will now have to stand trial, if you will, and that takes place in the Senate. It's presided over by the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And the argument right now is whether or not there should be another trial in the Senate. Uh, now, we've, we're being told that that's not the role of the Senate. The, the case is made in the House 
and the Senate reviews that case and makes a determination. Chuck Schumer is now arguing, no, 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 although that's what the Constitution says and that's what has happened historically, we want to uh, re-engage uh, some of these witnesses and, and call on others and, and uh, make a trial in the Senate. Well, that would certainly, as has what happened in the House, that would certainly break precedent of what we've seen in the country historically and what the Constitution actually uh, says. So that um, that back and forth, that battle is ongoing. And in fact, uh, Mr. Schumer has indicated that he's going to try to postpone or prevent this process from moving forward until, as he put it, it's uh, it's going to be fair and there's a trial in the Senate. Um, that's probably not going to happen. And it's it's almost laughable, given how, given how unfair and one-sided the process in the House has been. So it's a mess, I think, is the, the bottom line. The president will be impeached, as I suggested. One article has been passed of the uh, impeachment resolution. Another will be voted on shortly in the final vote, 228. Um, and let me see here, because I've just seen a, a change in the numbers. Article 1 of the, the resolution of abuse of power, one uh, Republican apparently uh, voted in favor of impeaching the president. That's a number that had not been up a, a moment ago. So 226 Democrats, one Republican, one independent, uh, total 228 in favor of impeaching the president on the first article of impeachment, abuse of power. Uh, two Democrats, 181 Republicans, with a total of 183 opposing the impeachment of the president. So no surprises there. The one Democrat, or excuse me, the one Republican, I'm not clear as to who that individual is, but I don't think that was expected. And again, we'll try to get more um, information on that moving forward. Again, not altogether clear if um, both resolutions have been voted on and a Republican voted in favor of one, but not the other. Again, trying to watch that and interpret it while I'm on the air is a bit of a challenge. But nonetheless, um, an article, if not both articles of impeachment, have now officially passed in the U.S. House of Representatives. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with a new president and CEO of YMCA. He's not new to the organization, but new to the Pacific Northwest of Columbia Willamette. Something of an introduction of Tyler Wright when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on this Wednesday afternoon. What's the time? About 33 minutes after 5 o'clock. Well, as promised, I have with me in studio the new president and CEO of YMCA of Columbia Willamette. And uh, he joins us for something of an introduction. Now, I should mention that uh, Tyler Wright is not new to the YMCA. He has served that organization for a number of years, but he is new to the Pacific Northwest. Now, Tyler started uh, back in 1987 with YMCA as a volunteer camp director, and he served in many capacities and uh, various places and now is with us here in the Pacific Northwest. So let me just say on behalf of the city, welcome to the Portland area. What brought you here? Oh, thank you very much. Well, it, first of all, it's an honor to be here and a pleasure to be here um, and, and a true honor to be here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, well, as you mentioned, I've been in the YMCA really close to 30 years and um, I felt a calling and a compelling to look at this particular opportunity. Um, I was uh, contacted back in the spring, if you will, by someone to say, um, are you interested? Would you be willing to relocate? And I'd been at my last previous YMCA assignment for about 10 years as the CEO there. And this is in the Southern California mm-hmm. area. Um, and what I loved a lot about this YMCA, and we actually were, were kind of connected at the hip, uh, this Y and the Y where I came from. Um, we actually stole, I'm air quoting there, Jordan, we stole the chaplain 
chaplaincy idea of this YMCA and adopted it for us and our YMCA back in Southern California as we were looking to promote the mission of the YMCA mm-hmm. and, the, and the Christian aspect of the YMCA. And so when this this position arose, I thought this is this is just this is where God wants me at that point. So through a series of interview processes and conversations back and forth. The job was offered to me in August, and I just readily jumped at it. Now, many of us are familiar with the former president and CEO, Bob Hall. Mm-hmm. He announced his retirement earlier this year. He is now going to be a, um, what is it, um, president emeritus of the organization. He's going to work with you and, and others uh, in the organization. So he's not fading from from view here in the area because we have grown to love and appreciate uh, his work. But what do you have to do in order to prepare to serve in a, an entirely new community that has its own quirks and foibles and unique aspects in order to effectively lead the organization? Well, thank you for that. And first of all, I do thank you for the kind words about Bob. Bob's actual last day with us is uh, December 31st. Ah. Uh, but we came to I th- we came to an agreement that I think he wanted to spend the last couple of weeks in, in vacation time. So Bob's unofficial last day was December 13th. Uh, last official day is the 31st. But as I tell people, he's not dying. He's right over <laughs> there and I've got his cell number. And so he's a very genuine and yeah. brilliant man and just happy to carry on the legacy of the work that he's done. Um, I was taught years ago, Georgine, by some great mentors um, with the kind permission of a board or a supervisor to give myself a little time to understand the yes. community in which I'm, I'm now going to serve. Um, so I submitted with our board of trustees a 90-day plan, which essentially was, let me get out and get to know. Uh, please introduce me to whomever you think I, you want me to, to uh, share ideas and comments with. And I've been kind of on a listening tour, if you will. And as I think we talked off air, this is my official fifth week starting today. Uh, and it's been, it's been amazing. And people are very open and candid about their thoughts about our why and the, the issues that are facing our, our communities today. Um, and so as people say, well, what have you decided at this point? I say, well, I've decided not to make any decisions <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Which is a wise approach because it does take time to familiarize yourself with a new community. You don't meet someone face to face and then start, you know, start no. yeah. uh, giving orders immediately. You, you get to know the personality of a town and, and that's the challenge of new leadership. Absolutely. I know that there's been an effort to emphasize the C in YMCA. Uh, to restore Christ as the center. And Mm -hmm. in the 21st century, that can be something of a challenge. Generally speaking, how do you see that approach moving forward here in the Pacific Northwest? As you know, the Portland area, we're considered the least churched uh, area of the country. Um, how do you see impacting our community? And again, I know you're, you're beginning to, uh, to get to know us, but moving forward with that emphasis. Well, I think the key words in our particular mission statement, as as they exist in most YMCA's mission statements, is how we end it with the words, for all. For all. I don't, I, and it's just my humble opinion after five weeks, I think there is a perception right now that the way we are approaching the C in the YMCA seems, could be seen sometimes as exclusive. And so my, what I'm writing down for myself is how do I continually interpret that? Because, because we are a Christian-based organization and putting Christ at the center does not mean that we're not open and welcoming to anyone who wants to participate in any one of our life-saving activities. And I think that's kind of the interpretation that I'm, I'm learning how to craft right now. Um, we've had story after story that, um, from our past that people have said, and one person actually reflected to me, is that I, I don't belong to your organization, Tyler, because I'm not a Christian. And so for us to be able to really, truly, in my humble opinion, evoke the true word of Christ mm-hmm. is that we are a loving, caring, welcoming organization 
and that we embrace you, um, that's going to, I think that's where the platform that I'm going to begin to build my tenure. Yeah. Yeah. And if you know anything about the life of Christ, that is a reflection of who Christ was. In fact, he was often criticized because of who he associated with. Absolutely. And yet that was the breadth of his love and and concern for all people. Yeah. Well, it's a little a joke that I heard from one from an individual who I met, and he says, "Where where are you living, Tyler?" And I said, "Well, I want to live in downtown Portland because I really want to know what's going on in our in our, the largest part of our service area." And I he gave me a little wink and a nod, and he said, "You know, Tyler, Portland's full of sin." And I said, "I think that's where Christ would want me." <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> By the way, there's sin in southeast Portland. You'll find it in northeast, southwest. It, we pretty much you know everywhere, right? Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the YMCA. Mm-hmm. I don't want to assume that all of our listeners are familiar with the kind of work that the YMCA does and the services that you all offer. The scope of it to me is just staggering how many people you serve in our community and mm-hmm. across the country. Well, here in Portland, uh, annually we serve about 60,000 people on a variety of, in a variety of different ways. And I, I think what you said is spot on. I've been with the organization for 30 years and we're we're a very complicated organization to explain, and so unfortunately, sometimes we drop into what I call our widgets, our programs and activities. And I was part of a national um, marketing branding team back in the early two thousands, and we 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 contracted with a large marketing firm, and the firm came back and said, "Your constituencies are very confused because you just don't have the kind of message that resonates. It's not a simplified message." And I'll never forget, he said that in my in my world, Tyler. There is no such thing as an elevator speech because I have no Mm -hmm. idea what floor you're going to get off on. He said, if you cannot interpret to somebody who's listening the mission or purpose of your organization between the second and third floor, you're already behind. And so he used examples like the Komen Foundation and the Red Cross. Mm -hmm. But when you throw out the YMCA, people talk about activity and program. Um, so I believe that the YMCA is a true cause-driven organization. I, I relate it all the way back to our founding father, uh, George Williams, in 1844, who created this organization, Georgine, because young men were dying in the streets. They were migrating in from, from the rural areas to look for work in the industrial, industrial London time, and they, they had no place to live. And so he literally created this organization with one sole purpose. We are here to save men's lives. And so I think if you were, if we were just to land upon that, then I think we are, we're able to look through a different lens in all the activities and programs that we offer and ask ourselves, are we truly saving that individual's life? Whether that be teaching a child how to swim so they can pull themselves out of a pool mm-hmm. safely, or whether just socially connecting somebody who's alone. To me, those are, all, those are all part of Christ's message. It's all about how this organization can reach in, make a positive impact, and air quoting, save your life. Now, you're new to our community, not new to the YMCA, and as you're making yourself at home, and I hope you feel welcome here and at home in the Pacific Northwest, where might we expect to see you? Oh, my goodness. Um, Is it too vague of a comment to say uh, everywhere? (laughs) (laughs) Or as I shared with one trustee, wherever wherever you want me, wherever you feel the calling is, um, specifically speaking about our YMCA, we we have a number of sites all over of the Columbia Willamette area, and, and we, we provide child care services, uh, health, healthy living type of activities and services, but there are also pockets of our service area that we're not involved in. And so I want to kind of find those and see if, see what we can do. I'm also, I've been typed in the movement as kind of a innovative, creative, out-of-box type of thinker, and I bring, I think I bring that to our YMCA to say there are creative ways to serve our communities that don't traditionally match up to the YMCA model that most people think about. So I think I, I simplify that by saying not every child wants to go to camp. Not every child wants to play basketball. 
But there are issues out there facing all of our youth and of our families. And I think we have, as an organization, we have to get a little bit more nimble, not just here in our area, but just nationally speaking, is that if we continually rest on what we've done in the past, I don't think it's going to continually resonate with the generations of the future. Well, you're certainly in the right place. (laughs) Kind of of an approach. Now, for listeners who aren't familiar with the YMCA and the services that you provide, what's the best way to discover? And we had a conversation, it's been a few months ago with uh, with Bob Hall, Mm -hmm. and we talked a little bit about this. But what's the best way for listeners to discover how the YMCA is reaching out in this community? Well, I think the first thing to do is just, I mean, just Google us. I mean, go, go to our website. I think you'll see the breadth of our activities. And I actually think I, I, I like the messages that we're sending out. We're talking a little bit about the impact uh, that we particularly make. We're, we're involved in a lot of our school districts up here. So parents who are seeking some sort of care for their children, whether it be before or after, I think they could reach into their school districts mm-hmm. as well. Um, well, they can just pick up the phone and, you know, ask, hey, can I call the YMCA? And they'll probably get us eventually because we're all over the place. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, well, and I, that's the kind of the point I wanted you to make is the YMCA is all over the place. It is. And very accessible in areas in our community that we may not really recognize. But I think we're getting to the point where we're starting to see, oh, the YMCA is active in our community. Now, the name you need to remember, Tyler Wright. He's the new president and CEO of the YMCA of uh, Columbia Willamette. And we are so delighted that you are here and look forward to great things in the future. And you have an open door here. You're, You're always welcome. Thank you very, very much. And to everyone listening, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dorian. All right. Tyler Wright, keep, uh, keep that name close. Up next, we're going to talk about a new Netflix series that's, well, it's rather controversial. We'll see what's, uh, what's on the screen and why people are objecting. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Before we begin, I just wanted to say thank you for your generosity at our World Concern Radiothon yesterday. We exceeded by a small margin the goal that had been set for us, so I'm so grateful for your generosity. It was a very difficult subject at a time when I think most of us want to think about cheerier things, but you recognized the call, took advantage of the opportunity, and as a consequence, lots of children in Somalia and northern Kenya are going to experience the life-saving nutrition that they so desperately need. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, Netflix is uh, facing backlash over a comedy special with a homosexual Jesus. It's called The First Temptation of Christ. It's a Brazilian Netflix Christmas comedy special, and it portrays Jesus as uh, homosexual and uh, Mary as a weed-smoking uh, woman, The First Temptation of Christ is the uh, Netflix Christmas comedy special. It portrays the things I've mentioned. It sparked a petition demanding that it be pulled as offensive to Christmas, which, of course, is precisely what the uh, developers want. The attention that they get uh, um, and the controversy that uh, titillates some viewers into watching what they otherwise would not have been interested in. The First Temptation of Christ is sort of a play on the movie that came out uh, several years ago, The, Fir- the Last Temptation of Christ, uh, that also created something of a, a, a stir many, many years ago, because uh, in a sequence in that movie, uh, Jesus had a um, romantic uh, relationship with Mary Magdalene, Uh, And apparently while he was on the cross was hallucinating about what it would have been like to have a wife and children. Anyway, this is the first temptation of Christ. It was created, as I mentioned, by a Brazilian YouTube comedy group. 
The 46-minute satirical special tracks Jesus coming home to his surprise birthday party with Orlando, his openly flamboyant friend. And despite his attempts to conceal his friend, uh, Orlando joins the party later and sings a quirky holiday bop that includes the lyrics... Um, which I won't even mention. Well, more than 1.8 million people have signed the petition. It calls for the special to be prohibited and pulled from Netflix and for the uh, organization that produced it to apologize. Viewers have accused the uh, the group of religious discrimination and derision and disrespect of, for the faith of the Catholic Church and especially for God. As I mentioned, this is a Brazilian production company. Uh, Marco Feliciano, a conservative evangelical pastor who is president of the Brazilian Legislature's Commission on Human Rights and Minorities, tweeted his disdain for the special, saying Christians and non-Christians have asked me to take action against the irresponsible members of Porta das Fundo. It's time for what we took a collective action, churches and all good people, to put an end to this, the tweet reads in English. Well, the petition had yet to reach its goal of 3 million signatures by Monday afternoon, but the numbers are increasing. One commentator who claimed to cancel their Netflix subscription entirely in protest wrote, No one is obliged to believe in Jesus Christ, but we demand respect for our beliefs. Whoever disrespects my God does not deserve my money. Another um, uh, Catholic bishop from Palermis, he called for Christians to cancel their Netflix uh, subscriptions. The group's last Christmas special, The Last Hangover, won the International Emmy Award for Best Comedy Web Television Special. The First Temptation of Christ is still available to stream on network on Netflix, rather, and they have not uh, responded to Variety Magazine's request for comment. My guess is they're uh, loving the attention that this controversy has uh, gained for them. And uh, it will very likely continue through the the holiday season. And it's not unusual for uh, various outlets to use the Christmas season to denigrate uh, the the man Jesus, the Son of God. So it's not altogether surprising, but people are outraged by it once again, and rightly so. Well, tomorrow on the program, we had a guest scheduled. In fact, I've been mentioning that guest, but they have uh, canceled. We'll try to reschedule them at at some future point. It's the one-year Bible, Pray for America Bible. You might want to check that out if you're interested in reading through the Bible with a particular view to pray for the the nation. It's an NLT, national—let's see, what is it, a NLT— Trying to remember New Living Translation. Thank you, James, who whispered that in my ear. New Living Translation. Again, the one year Bible, pray for America the one year pray for America Bible. I've used the, the one year Bibles in the past in which they prescribe certain scriptures to read each day so that at the end of the year you will have read through all of scriptures. This one, in the process of uh, guiding you through the scriptures, as you know, America is not mentioned in the Bible, but they also have uh, opportunities uh, to pray for the nation uh, and use examples from Scripture in which uh, God intervened or where the people prayed for the nation or what happens when people are no longer faithful to God and so on. So that's what that's all about. I'm not, uh, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to get them on before the end of the year, but you might want to check that out again. The One Year Pray for America Bible, the New Living Translation. And yes, I managed to talk Dan Rice into a Rice Family Christmas on Friday, so I'm looking forward to sharing the mic with Dan Rice. Actually, we'll be on two separate mics, um, but we're going to share a Rice Family Christmas that's coming up on Friday, and I'm looking forward to, um, to doing just that. On Monday, uh, we have special programmers that will be um, hosting the program, and we'll tell you more about that uh, later in the week, but we're looking forward to a holiday season of special programming that I think you will enjoy. And then, as has become something of a habit for me, uh, we uh, are given 
Christmas Eve and Christmas Day off as a matter of course here at KPDQ. Salem Media has uh, given that to us. But I've taken the week between Christmas and New Year off. This year I'm continuing that after the New Year and we'll be back behind the mic on the 6th of January. So we'll be uh, playing the best of the Georgine Rice Show so far. And that's what we typically do during that interim period. But look forward to hitting the ground running on the 6th of January and resuming uh, covering the day's news and events. A lot's going on right now, as you uh, know, and we've been keeping an eye uh, on the impeachment uh, hearing that's taking place right now. The Rules Committee last night passed out the rules that would govern how this process was going to take place. And now we are in that process in earnest. And there's no question that there will be a vote by the end of the evening uh, in the House along party lines with a couple of exceptions, a couple of Democrats that we anticipate perhaps more will vote against impeachment. But it's a foregone conclusion that really began in January following the inauguration of President Trump that uh, he would be impeached. It will then go on to the Senate where he is not likely to be removed. And, of course, when we come back from the break, uh, that will be the focus of attention in Washington rather than other of the people's business. But we'll cover that uh, as it emerges uh, in the next few days and certainly after the start of the new year as members of Congress will enjoy a holiday break as well. So tomorrow we'll uh, let you know what's happening tomorrow. And then on Friday, Dan Rice will join me in studio. Pro-Rice Family Christmas. I hope you'll join us as well. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Chris Williams for filling in today to engineer the program as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show a part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.